Welcome to the Variety Hour, where local leaders talk Memphis. Listen to you, move your mouth. I bet you come from way down south. Now don't tell me, let me guess. You from the town that I love best. Talk Memphis, I wish you would. Talk Memphis, you sound so good. Talk Memphis, high on the bluff. I swear I can't get enough. Listening to you talk that stuff. Talk Memphis, oh yeah. Talk Memphis. Welcome to Talk Money. And now here's your host, Jim Shoemaker. And good morning and welcome to Talk Money. I'm Jim Shoemaker. We've got some very good guests here in the studio today. You don't want to miss the program. But according to a recent Northwestern Mutual study on planning and progress, this is about retirement planning, 56% of Americans don't know how much they need to retire. And I was a little shocked when I read that, but here's some other statistics that kind of move you. But 56% don't know how much they need to retire. 22% have less than $5,000 5% have 5000 to 25000 only 16% have $200,000 or more. Well, I know we're planning about, you're thinking about retirement. You're, you're, we get a lot of questions about that. But what questions are you asking yourself, and what questions should you be asking? Sometimes we don't ask the right question. You know, the old saying, you always don't know what you don't know. Well, Senator Rob Portman, a Republican from Ohio, recently in an article in the Wall Street Journal, said each day 10 Thousand baby boomers retire and begin receiving Medicare and Social Security benefits. Well, my simple math, and you know, I'm supposed to be pretty good with numbers. That's about four million a year, according to the Northwestern study that was talking about that. Of that four million a year, forty-five percent of that group fear running out of money. Yet, despite being aware of possibly running out of money, forty-one percent of, according to that study. They've done nothing to improve their situation. Well, what should you be doing? That's part of the program today. On a different subject, the death of a spouse is one of the most devastating events in a person's life. We just had that to happen in someone around my, in my social group. And, you know, it was, just, it was just tough. It's just very tough. To make matters worse, it's a time when you feel incapable of dealing with life's roots, life's routines, and you're slammed with an avalanche of financial risk and task and all those things that go on. And it requires that you look at things immediately. It gets your attention. Well, my guests today are David Rochester and Ted Miner. And they're here to help us with questions and concerns about the fear of running out of money. And what do you need to do? What do you need to be aware of if you are the surviving spouse? From our Did You Know files, with all the discussion about retirement, well, the AARP says 25% of American seniors receive at least 90% of their pre-tax income from their monthly Social Security retirement benefit. 25%. According to financial, excuse me, according to Fidelity Investments, the average 401k contribution rate of American employees, this is a good sign, in 2018 and 19 is about 8.8% of their salary is going into a qualified plan, a 401k contribution plan. That's 77% of the private industry workers deferring retirement benefits. They say they're participating. So we're putting up 8.8%, and 77% of you are putting something into the plan. That's great. You're participating. Well, if you have questions for Talk Money, send them to Talk Money at shoemakerfinancial.com. To find today's program on podcast or past programs, go to iTunes and search for Shoemaker Financial. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Coming up. Retirement Income Certified Professionals, David Rochester and Ted Miner. Questions to get answered before you retire, and what do you need to do if you 
of the surviving spouse. I'm Jim Shoemaker. You're listening to The Voice, KWAM 990 and FM 107.9. This is Talk Money. Podcasts of Talk Money are available in the iTunes store. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with more Talk Money after this. Jim Shoemaker, David Rochester, and Ted Miner are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securian Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FNIRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Welcome back. I've uh, got two great guys here in the studio with us. We're, they're both retirement income certified professionals. And I appreciate you guys taking time out of your busy practices. Thanks for being with us on the program today, Ted and David. Good morning. Well, guys, you, let me ask you this. There's so much going on. I mean, we I just read a statistic from AARP that says 25% of American seniors receive at least 90% of their pre-tax income for Social Security. Now, Ted, that's saying to me that, you know, 90%, that's, that's the cornerstone for a lot of people. And yet sometimes we, we take some of Social Security for granted. David, even in preparation for the program, you, you actually said that sometimes we don't even look at Social Security is being that critical, and yet it's ninety percent, you know, of somebody's income. Ted, well, those those are the the lower income people, but it also goes to show how many people aren't planning, aren't thinking about retirement. Uh, you know, they they look at well, mom and dad retired, they were okay, and they don't they don't try to to estimate how much uh, Social Security is. They don't know what that benefit is, and then when they retired, they're kind of stuck with just just Social Security. And they haven't set aside the assets they need to live a, a, a little bit better life. I read something recently from Fidelity. And, uh, you know, and I have to say this. When I read this, it's kind of it knocked me over. But let me just share with you. It said that if you're looking at what's recommended by this is the recommended retirement plan. This was Fidelity saying this is a, a study that was done. And I didn't get into the weeds of it, but it, it just shocked me. He said, listen, it says that a good rule of thumb is to have an equivalent of your salary saved by age 30. That made sense. That's a, that says you're starting, and that goes mm-hmm. back to what we talked about earlier, the 8.8% into a, 41, a 401k, and those 77% are doing that. Here's the next thing, though. This is this what just, I mean, I'm going, wow. You're to have 10 times your final salary when you reach age 67. Yep. That's, that's the number I use to... To just when I'm when I'm putting together data, when I'm trying to think about how how uh, how someone has done, that's a number that I'll I'll put in the back of my mind to kind of evaluate where I think they are. Well, Ted, let me say this: nearly 48 million people are claiming Social Security, and it's supposed to continue to grow. So, what are you helping people? What things are you doing? What I'm looking for the the facts about Social Security, some must knows about Social Security. And, and, I mean, this whole idea, they're talking about, is it going to be around? Should people think it's not going to be here? What are you telling people when it comes to planning with Social Security, planning for a retirement plan? Kind of walk us through some of the things that you see as most important. Well, first of all, Social Security is the first thing I look at when I sit down with someone to do some financial planning. Uh, because you have options in Social Security. The The amount of money that you get from Social Security is based on how much money you've made. It's also based on when you take your benefit. Uh, a lot of people want to rush in to take this, and this is probably part of the statistics that you just read. A lot of people want to start taking their benefit at 62. Uh, you know, the difference between your benefit at 62 versus what it is at 70 is 
it goes up that much over those years, and people want to rush to take that benefit. Uh, the important thing about Social Security, which is different about uh, about any other income they have, about pensions and, and otherwise, is that Social Security is indexed for inflation. This year, I think they just released the number that everybody get a 1.6% uh, increase next year, and I think it was 2.8% right. this year. Mm. So if you got Social Security, you got something that, that might keep pace with inflation, which is good. You're not losing purchasing power, and it also isn't fully taxed. So a dollar from Social Security is worth more than a dollar from your pension or a dollar from, from your savings because it's not fully taxed, and you're going to get an increase in, in the, uh, the the compensation. Are you seeing, and I ask, I'm going to ask both of you this, are you seeing when you're working in your practice that people are worried about Social Security not being there, Ted? Well, I think that has probably made some people want to take it at 62. I mean, I've, I've heard that comment. Well, I'm, I'm just afraid it's not going to be here. And and I think there's 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 a couple things that are said that make people concerned. They They talk about the Social Security Trust Fund. And the Social Security Trust Fund does not fully fund Social Security. The Social Security Trust Fund was set up to accept monies in it when they were when they were taking in more Social Security taxes than they were paying out. Last year is the first year they drew from the Social Security Trust Fund. Now, the Social Security Trust Fund is predicted to be empty by 2032. I think that's the date for that. So people look at that and they think, wow, Social Security is going, going bust. Well, the Social Security Trust Fund is responsible for 23% of what a person uh, is, is paid. The other 77% comes from your check and my check. Every week, every month, we, we uh, make money, they take it out, and that's redistributed to other people on Social Security. And those 77% of the benefits from Social Security is good to 2090. This 23% is the part that's that's got people concerned about. Oh, and that's the trust fund that's, that's funding right. that part there. David, do you see people also, you guys are both professionals at this. I mean, we're not talking about you know, part-timers. So you see this, you do deal with clients all the time. Are you talking to people that are also, as, De as Ted says, worried about this or concerned or what's your take? Jim, I see it more in the, in the younger groups, uh, typically mid thirties to early fifties that are more concerned because they believe that the folks who are older than them are so close, they're going to get it. They feel like maybe they're in a void uh, and that the benefits may not increase or they may have to delay longer. Perhaps Congress would change Social Security plan and delay when they can start taking the benefit. That's their bigger concern. Uh, but as a result, they also are more sensitive to their need to be saving more money. Okay. Now, when we talk about need, that's a great segue into what I wanted to ask. This back to this 10 times, you know, at 67, but one time if you're at age 30, uh, where you say, when I say one time, one time of your annual income, that's a that's a big number for some people, but yet we're reading that millennials are very good savers. And I mean, that's pretty strong that we're doing it. Is that because they're more disciplined than the baby boomers were? Is that what you're seeing, Ted, in the, where you're working with that? Is, I mean, is it more disciplined or there, or maybe it's that 77% participating in a 401k plan contributing 8.8%. You know, Jim, there is even a movement among the millennials. Uh, I forget what it's called, but were they, are trying to retire by 40. I like it. Uh, I mean, there's some that are actually trying to save 80% of what they make. They want to retire by 40. I forget what it's called. You can Google it. but And that's that's a millennial movement where they're trying to, and they're living on nearly nothing on what they make. They're living on very, very little and trying to save a ton of money because they want to retire very, very early. What is that? Is that is that in order to go play 
or is it to be their fear that they're not going to have enough money, or or what? Do you? I mean, I'm just asking the question. It would be conjecture on my part, but I, but I, but I found it kind of amazing that they were making that kind of money and they were putting that type of money away. But their purpose for doing that was so they could retire at a very very early age. Do we find that in our age group, baby boomer group that we're talking to, and we we think about that, that this this idea of those clients that we're that they're moderately worried or worried about having enough money, that we had no desire to do that. I seem like I remember people wanting to retire at 55 or, or 60, and they woke up at 55 and said, oops, I guess I can't do that, so we moved it to 60. Is that a mindset that maybe changes over time, or or or, or is it different with the millennials at this point? Or, or are we really talking about people that are just more disciplined than the baby boomers were? Well, I think today, I don't think that the people that are retiring really give retirement enough enough thought process before they retire. I was at a dinner last night, and I was sitting beside uh, a gentleman, and he was telling everybody, I'm retiring in May. And I thought, okay, this might be somebody I need to talk to, you know. And uh, as, as, the, as the dinner progressed, he found out what I did, and he said, hey, we need to get together. And in the back of my mind, I was saying, He's already picked his retirement date. I wonder how much thought process he's really put into this thing. Yeah. And, and, and that happens a lot, that people come to see us when they know when they're going to retire, but they really they haven't thought about really – they don't even know what their Social Security benefit is. They haven't thought about what, what option they're going to take on their pension if they have a, a pension option. They don't know – most people don't know what does a million dollars in my savings even mean from a standpoint of, of yearly income to me. The number that you read also, I believe, is based on not having a pension, not having much Social Security. If you got 10 times your income and you invest it, basically that's to provide for your living. Right, right. So if you have a pension, you got Social Security. You can lower that down. That's correct. correct. That's what he's talking about. Well, all right, let's 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 get into the Social Security question because if you just tuned in, my guest today, Ted Miner and David Rochester, both of these are retirement income certified professionals. They know the, They know the information that you need to know. We're going to find out a little bit more about Social Security, some some facts that we need to be sensitive to. It is the cornerstone to most people's retirement, and we need to ask the question. So, Ted, let me start with this question. I, I guess everybody needs to know what it, they need to do to qualify for Social Security. Let's start with that fundamental. Well, the years ago, they used to count things by quarter in terms of how many quarters you actually earned an income. And then they changed it to where you can actually earn four, four credits for every year that you work. So if, if you worked one quarter and made enough money, you could actually get four credits. So you need 40 credits, which is equivalent to 10 years of income. Now, that's what you need to qualify for Medicare, and that's also what you need to qualify for uh, Social Security benefits. Now, if you qualify, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that the benefit's that great. I mean, if you only got 10 years, because the benefit itself is based on 35 years of income. Mm. And if you've got if you've got 25 years of income, that means you got 10 zeros in there that they're averaging in. So to qualify for a benefit, you need to have 10 years of working history. So that's Medicare. Uh, well, that would give you Medicare, but that also qualifies you for a Social Security benefit. A benefit, okay. Uh, income. And then the amount of that benefit is based on the income level you have and the 35 highest years of income. And as I said, if you don't have those years, there's zeros in the formula, which knocks your benefit way down. And some people who don't think about that, who think they may be qualifying, they need to make sure that they are qualifying with those 10 quarters. 
the, the 10 years. Yes. And if, uh, you know, I would recommend, I would say this to everybody, you need to go on www.ssa.gov. You need to register there. You need to look at what the social security records show for your benefit. It'll give you an estimate of what your benefit will be at 62 at, at full retirement age and age and age 70. It'll also have a lot of people don't look at this, but it'll also have your work history there and your work history in the back tells you whether their records show you've got enough years in to qualify for the benefit. It'll also give you a good idea. Do I have 35 years in? Do I have some really low years in there? Uh, if I work another five or six years and replace some of the smaller ones, will it help my benefit? But there's, you know, looking at those years of history, uh, I, I, when I looked back at mine, I looked back and see what I made in 1974 when I was working in a grocery store going to, going to high school. But you so were qualified. I was qualified. Yeah, sure. Okay. And, uh, but now, the income that I'm making today replaces what I made back in 1974, and it, it helps my benefit. But that's that information is on that printout that you can get from the uh, Social Security website. It's important that people know that, and they can go to the website and do that. David, let me ask this. I know a lot of people kind of go through this mindset in their head. So, well, if I'm you know making a lot of money, can a person receive retirement benefit regardless of their wealth? I mean, say they're worth millions— are they going to receive a retirement? Are they going to get Social Security? Sure, Jim, as long as they've met the qualifications that Ted just referred to. I think there's you know, this assumption of, well, if if I have a lot of assets or a lot of income, I won't also draw Social Security, and that's not true. You will. Uh, now, it, you may not get full benefit if you took it early, or uh, if you're <clears throat> particularly if you took it early and you're still working, then you're going to have you're going to lose some of your benefit. So loss of benefits would only occur if you have excess earnings above amount, above a certain amount. Is that what you're talking about? Well, correct. There's also a loss of income if you take your benefits before full retirement age and you're still working. Otherwise, you're limited as to how much money you can make before full retirement age and also take Social Security. And, and it's not a lot. It's like seventeen thousand dollars. So if you make if you make if you anything you make above, I think it's seventeen six forty, but it's a little over seventeen thousand dollars. If you make over that for every two dollars you make over that, one dollar of your benefit, Social Security benefit, is taken away for that year. So if you if you're going to continue working, you don't want to take your benefit before full retirement. And you see a lot of people that do that. They take it early and then they, well, they go back to work or something. I I see people that don't think through that. They want that, they want that check to begin with. And when they do that, they are forever for the rest of their life receiving a discounted social security benefit. That's that's important to keep in mind. So, all right. What about the person that is divorced? Are they entitled to benefits from a former spouse? And that's critical for a lot of people I mean, those that are listening and you you divorced and you think, well, am I, can I get that person's Social Security, regardless of who was the big breadwinner? What about it? Johnny Carson has uh, four women that are filing. Now, they may be dead, but he had four women that actually filed and were receiving a survivor's benefit from his income because each of those women were married to him for 10 years. None of their benefits affected the other benefit. They were completely independent. So, yes, a... Uh, a uh, uh, a divorcee has a benefit just like a just like a 
a spouse to uh, to previous marriages. Now there are other some other qualifications that they may have, especially if they've been remarried uh, or they have. Uh, if they if they're married at the time they try to get their benefits, they may be subject to some scrutiny because they also have. So, so you're telling me that's legacy for Johnny Carson. That's his uh, legacy. I guess so. <laughs> and, and there's been other people they've speculated may have five people that would that would uh, get benefit. That's a problem with our our system, really. But when that's you, ten years, though. I mean, you can't go right. nine years and eleven months. It's ten years is the maximum or the minimum number. And then you can qualify for that person. So for divorced, if you're divorced, that's correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let me ask this question. So if you retire early, okay, say I'm going to go back to the millennials at 40, or let's say when we were growing up, 55 was our magical age with no income for the last seven years, you literally retire. All right. Now keep in mind, is that going to affect that benefit at age 62 or 66? I mean, I didn't, I'm retired. I qualified. I, I think I know the answer to this, but I want to hear your answer. Yes, and let me let me say a little bit about the statement because I think where that question came from is someone receives a statement, like I mentioned on the uh, the the uh, the website. You can go pull that statement down that gives an estimate of your benefit. Now, what that when they when that someone sees that, that statement and it says your benefit at age 62 is this, and let's say they're 55 and looking at that statement and they decide they're going to quit work. That statement is assuming that you make what you made on your last report. Otherwise, if you turn the page over and you look at your, your work history, if they have today, if they had 2018's income down there, they are assuming that you made what you made in 2018 every year up until you take the age 62 benefit. So they continue to work. That's, that's right. what they're assuming. Well, they're assuming. That's what yeah. the IRS is assuming. So. So, or the Social Security Administration is assuming. So, if you stop work at fifty-five, yes, it's probably going to affect your age sixty-two benefit as reported on the on the report from the Social Security Administration. And of course, if you take it at sixty-two, it's heavily discounted because it's early. Well, that's that's important information. When we come back, I want to ask you the question. I know so many people want to take it at sixty-two. They feel that's kind of a magical number. You're going to tell us about delaying the benefit to 70 and what that benefit is. I want to hear that from you. I want to know what that number is because that's critical for our listeners to understand. So when we come back, Ted Miner and David Rochester here. We're talking about Social Security, but coming up, if you're the last surviving spouse, what do you do? It's a tough question. I'm Jim Shoemaker. You're listening to Talk Money. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information is not investment advice or a recommendation. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, I'm talking with De Ted Miner and David Rochester, and we're talking about some facts that you need to know about Social Security. We've covered everything from filing early, filing late, which we're going to dive in some depth with that with Ted in just a second. And David's going to talk in a few minutes about some of the things that you need to know that you need to do and some things you don't need to do if you're the surviving spouse, you've lost your spouse, or you're thinking that's going to happen. I mean, you know, just recently in my own personal life, we were visiting a person having a birthday party for someone Sunday in, in hospice, and she passed away yesterday morning. And, you know, she was 56 years old. 
This is something that happens to us. We need to be prepared for it, and we need to understand it. And Ted's going to Ted's helping us with knowing what to do with Social Security, and David's going to drive us through that whole process of what some of the things that we need to do if you are the surviving spouse. But now, Ted, first, let me ask you this. I want to know the difference. I want people to understand there's a unique difference or a very important difference between filing at 62 and getting Social Security benefits or 65 or 66, mm-hmm. whatever your date is, and waiting to 70. Give me that overall overarching thought process for that. Let's say that a person has a full retirement age of 66 and their benefit, for, you know, it's, it, the problem is, is the government calls it full retirement benefit. They don't, they don't talk about the fact that it goes up past that, that age. If you file and you take that benefit at 62, if the benefit was $2,000 at 66, it's going to be $1,500. It's discounted 25%. If you wait till 70, it goes up 32%. So it'd be $2,640 instead of $2,000. And the difference between 62, a $1,500 a month, and 2640 at 70 is 76%. That doesn't include the COLAs that are adjusted every year. That is the delayed credits that you get from waiting from the Social Security Administration. That is automatic. Automatic. Now, does the widow or widower receive that benefit? That's Jim, that's a great question, especially a great segue into what David has here because one of the things that we haven't discussed, and it becomes important to coordinate couples' benefits – and usually what, what you try to do is you take the higher income earner and you want them to wait to 70 because they're not thinking about just their life. Because when they if they pass away first, their benefit, if it's the largest, is going to go to their spouse. So you're not thinking about one person's life when that person is waiting till 70. You're thinking about two person's life. So yes, that uh, it does go to the spouse and you want to try to get that benefit as big as you can. Uh, and wait until 70, it's significantly bigger. I, I appreciate you giving us that information. If you guys would like to talk, anybody like to talk to Ted Miner, you can just give him a call at 757-5757. I mean, obviously, Ted, you know a lot about this. You do a lot of work with people. Both you guys are engaged daily with what you're doing with your clients and stuff. And I appreciate how you've laid that out. And I think even to anybody can understand this. And I think that's the key is you you share it with people in such a way that it's understandable. And David, when you talk with people about Social Security, and I know that's a you filing Social Security is one of those things that you do when you're a surviving spouse. Walk us through that process. What what do you share with someone when that's when you're sitting down counseling the surviving spouse? Sure, Jim. So when there's when a spouse has passed away and there's a survivor, if they're already at the age where they can receive Social Security, then they need to immediately or soon thereafter contact Social Security Administration. Let them know of the. De- of the deceased and determine what their benefit will now be. If that will change it again, as said, as Ted has said, it depends on who is drawing the higher benefit, who, who qualifies for the higher benefit. And to reiterate what he said, if, if the surviving spouse took their benefit early, that's going to affect how much they're going to receive from, from the deceased and that's side. That's part of a planning process. That, you're it absolutely about. that is. is absolutely not something that just happens. You right. have to think through that. Back to your comment yesterday with the person you know, that you were having dinner with last night. Did they plan through that? They've elected to, to retire. Was the amount of timing and planning, all that to go into this? It just doesn't happen. There's some things you've got to do. That's right. And, and you know what? When you're getting ready to retire, the lifestyle you have lived up until the point of retirement you probably haven't had to think a lot about, most people probably haven't had to think about, 
do I have enough money to do this? Do I have enough money to do that? But you're entering a whole different stage of life, and you need to do planning for it. Well, let's go into this thing, because I think the death of a spouse, that I think, and I want people to understand, I think it's one of the most devastating events of a person's life. This past early in the spring of this year, my wife went through a sickness, and I, you know, I'm looking at her in the hospital, and I'm thinking, this is not good. I don't, she's never been sick. Uh, I mean, we've been married 47 years, and I can count on one hand the number of times she's been sick, and it was never anything serious. And all of a sudden, this was a serious event in our life. And I'm thinking, my goodness, what in the world is going on here? And I thought all about the things that I've been planning for her. You know, I've been making sure because I said, I'm going to die first. You know, it's all that part of it. All of a sudden, I'm thinking, let me make sure everybody understands. She was not close to death. But it did go through my mind. I'd been doing all this planning on my side, thinking, okay, now I've got to think about what happened there. And, you know, when you're doing all that, you got this, all the financial questions and things you got to do. It requires your immediate attention. So, David, guide us through this because tell me some don'ts. Let's just start with a negative side. What are some don'ts that you don't do in the death of a spouse or things that you would counsel people to say, here's some things you should consider not doing immediately upon a person's death. Sure, Jim, and I've I've been exposed to this numerous times, both within my family and, and with clients. This is a very emotional time, and more times than not, it is a surviving widow as opposed to a surviving widower. And uh, sometimes the natural effect of things is husband handled you know, a lot of the bigger financial issues like the house note, the mortgage, the 401k, the pension, and, and the wife many times took more care of more of the day-to-day, uh, paying the bills, the checkbook, and so forth, and sometimes even not that. So this could be a, a total change in their scenario of, wow, we've got a lot of stuff. I don't even know where it is, and I don't know who's in charge. I don't know who's a beneficiary. I don't know who to reach out to. So first of all, I think it's real important that a surviving spouse take a breather, not immediately start making decisions. And now there's some things that have to be done immediately, and we'll talk about that. But I'll give you some examples. Uh, you take a couple that's living in a house for a period of time, and the surviving spouse might say, this house is too big, or it's not close enough to my children. I need to immediately sell my house and move move in with one of my children. And I would say that's a don't do. Well, I, those are things. So don't don't sell your house. Don't move in with adult children. I know you've got some more don't do's. And I think people need to understand these are things that – you know, you, as David said, you take a breather. You got a lot of things you have to do, but take a breather. Don't sell your house and don't move in with an adult child at this point, unless it's just absolutely you, know, you have to do that. But it's better not to do that. When we come back, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, David's going to continue to walk through a few more of these don't do's, but then he's going to go into what we need to do. You do not want to miss this part of the program. We're talking about if you are the surviving spouse, what are some things that you need to do? Kind of a checklist. Grab a piece of paper if you got a chance. Get a pad and write some of these down. If you just tuned in, my guest today, David Rochester, Ted Miner. We're talking about at this segment of the program some do things you need to do as far as if you're the surviving spouse. Stay with us. I'll be back in just a minute. I'm Jim Shoemaker, and you're listening to Talk Money. If you have questions you'd like to have answered on the program, email them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. The last decade of the 19th century saw a wave of incorporations of towns within Shelby County, such as Madison Heights, Binghampton, and Idlewild. 
Memphis city officials saw this as a major public health issue, the horrific yellow fever epidemic in 1878 still being fresh on their minds. To prevent the recurrence of an epidemic, the city worked hard to improve garbage collection, install modern restrooms, replace wood with gravel in the roadways, and most importantly, build a modern sewer system. These changes were neither fast nor cheap, and many Memphians were very anxious over the thought of smaller towns being near Memphis that could not afford a proper level of sanitation control. After much political wrangling between the city and state legislature, an annexation measure was passed, making these communities part of the city of Memphis. The annexation put to rest the concerns over public health felt by those who had gone through the horror of the yellow fever epidemic 10 years earlier and doubled the size of the city. This has been another Mid-South History Moment brought to you by Shoemaker Financial. The S&P is an unmanaged index of 500 large cap stocks. Investors cannot invest in an index. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments will fluctuate and were redeemed to be worth more or less than when originally invested. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. I'm talking with David Rochester in this segment of the program. We're talking about some things that if you are the surviving spouse, you don't do and some things that you need to do. Some of this is just simply maybe you can do some pre-planning if you know. And you just whether you know or you don't know, you just have to do some pre-planning. And what we're talking about is some things to do like that. But there's some things that a surviving spouse needs to figure out. And they need to know which ones they need to address immediately or wait. And so... David, you said don't do's was don't put the house on the market immediately. I get that. You're, is there a timeline to wait? Do you tell somebody a year or two years or what? I normally say a year, Jim. Just, again, take a breather. Give a little time to get used to what now is going to be the new norm. And uh, settle into where you are so you can start thinking more rationally and less emotionally. I understand that. You said don't. Don't agree to move in with the child. I can understand how children weep around that parent and say, hey, mom, you can come live here. Dad, you can come stay with us. That's not always the best. That's true. And I, I think the other thing we've got to keep in mind is, speaking of children, a lot of times there's this this sense by the surviving spouse, well, this is my opportunity to help my children. I won't need all this money, whatever all this money may mean. So this is my opportunity to help my children, my grandchildren. But again, I think that could all come in time. Just let's not get in a big hurry about that. Second thing is, is there's a lot of times, and I've run into this, where where a surviving spouse, a widow, will see this, I need to give more to charity. You know, this is more money than than we've ever had. It's the same amount of money they had as a couple, but now that they think there's just one, well, I, I won't need but half of this. Mm-hmm. So getting in a hurry to give money away to charity, I think you got to be very cautious about that. Again, it can happen in due time. Put the brake pedal on and just wait until – because a grieving period is different for everybody. So give yourself a time to just take a breather and grieve instead of making some of those big financial decisions. But, David, you talk about that. I mean, I understand the don'ts, but now what are some things you need to do? What are things either pre-planning or after the death of the spouse? Well, obviously pre-planning is, is the thing to do, but if the if it's already occurred, if the death has already occurred, that's, that's behind us. Let's talk about pre-planning just a little bit, though. I think it's very advantageous if while both spouses are living, there's already been some type of filing system established, whether it's a file cabinet, whether it's uh, saved electronically, but where both spouses know how to access that information. One key thing is, because we're in an electronic and, and technology society day, is passwords. 
recently I had a, a couple or excuse me, a surviving spouse I met with, uh, her husband had handled most, most all of the finances, including a lot of the bill paying. And she wasn't even sure where all of the accounts were, banking accounts, who was owed and so forth. And a lot of that was kept on the deceased phone, including passwords. The phone got wiped and there was no access to that information. So there was a lot of homework that had to be done to try and get all this. And they're still working trying to figure some of these things and out. And that creates just an enormous amount of stress. It does. I mean, that's it, it is a work. You can work through it. But instead of just being able to open up, as you said, a colored folder that has passwords that's where only the spouse may know or somebody, you know, you tell the trusted family friend or so, or the planner knows. Bottom line is, you you know, you just don't want to just pass passwords out to everybody. But the reality is, if you had something like that, the stress level stays low. Right. And we'll mention building your trusted team in a moment. But I think the, the once this time has passed, uh, there needs to be a filing system. So if there wasn't one started or even there, if there was before, this is a time to tighten it up and research and gather things like your, your bank statements, your, your credit card statements, where the bills are, and create your own filing system. I think just from a simplistic paper standpoint is put it in colored folders and put it in a file where it's easily, um, easily accessible. You know, we've talked about this, about whether or not as a, as a it's difficult. We do a lot of that for a client, but the reality is you can't do it all. And so what happens when the person says, I'm going to, procrastination sets in, I'm going to, I'm going to, and here it is now you're talking to the surviving spouse and, and, and he or she says, we were going to. Is there a way that, that you can kind of nudge people along, David? And how do you do that? I mean, you know, it's, it's just important information to know, but people have a tendency to procrastinate. Right, Jim. And, and even in our field, it's easy to do that. We think we've always got tomorrow or next year to get this done. So to answer your question, uh, we've talked about this in prior shows. We have a, a document we can supply our clients that's basically to get them started, get them thinking along those lines. It's called... Uh, uh, important financial documents, and it's a way for them to log where they keep uh, passwords, where they keep uh, their wills, their their investment statements, things like marriage license. They can go and record that and then keep that in a file and let important people who are part of their team know where that is. I'm not saying hand it out, but at least let them know where this paper trail is. It's under the. It's in the top right drawer underneath the socks. Exactly. Or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's you know I I know of some individuals who literally have a scavenger hunt lined out so that you've got to go to place A to get one thing and place B to get another and it's going to be interesting for their family when the time comes along. I know. For my wife and I, I put it together in two books, and I mean each document is in. I mean, it's thick books, but each document that I want her to see, I want her to have, and where, and then it's instructions, and uh, you know, and, and it is time consuming. I mean, and I have to work. And it, by the way, when I work on it for me, it's not a well. I'll do this for thirty minutes. It's a you know a day. You know, I just have to sit down and concentrate and pull in everything that I want to, and then I update it every year. And honestly, sometimes I go, is this worth it? Well. The last time I sat down with her, literally in tears, she said, I so much appreciate what you've got here because I wouldn't know where to turn, you know, and, and I understand that. So now she knows it's there. She's known it's there for a while. We've been doing this for a while. But the reality is it's difficult. It it's is. It's not and, easy. And I'll tell you, it's, you know, not to say if you don't do it, you know, you're a bad person or anything like that, but it really shows an act of love, Jim, that 
that you and I, my my tax accountant came in last week and and we were going over some things and uh, we had done some some work for that individual and he wanted his wife fully involved in everything that was going on and he already had his book put together with colored tabs referencing the most recent statements who to contact what to look for his son has a copy of it and son's basically in charge that if wife can't make all the decisions son knows exactly what to do and i think they're having a meeting this week or next week very prepared and i just admired what he had done he had really taken the initiative on his own and yet asked us to come in and really kind of confirm what he was doing all right when we come back we got to take a short break but when we come back i want you to go specifically through some to-do lists very very you know we don't have a lot of time at the end of the segment of the program but some things that you say these are important number one number two number three for me okay david i will all right if you just tuned in david rochester we're talking about a list of things to do if you're the surviving spouse when we come back we're going to go one two three Get your pencil, get your pad, write them down. You're listening to Talk Money. I'm Jim Shoemaker. Thanks for being with us. Hey, stay for the next segment. It's the best part. It will be the list. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. Podcasts for Talk Money are available for iOS mobile devices in the iTunes store. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. Please keep in mind that the primary reason to purchase a life insurance product is the death benefit. Life insurance products contain fees such as mortality and expense charges and may contain restrictions such as surrender periods. Financial advisors do not provide specific mortgage or tax or legal advice, and this information should not be considered as such. You should always consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your own specific tax or legal situation. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Welcome back. I'm talking with David Rochester. We're talking about things that you should know to do if you're the surviving spouse. Now, it's a tough time. A lot of things going on in your life. But the reality is there's some financial decisions that you have to begin to make. David's going to give us some pre-planning, and yet at the same time, if it's after the death, some things that you must do. David, take us through steps that you would say to anybody, here's some things you need to do if you're the surviving spouse. Okay, day one, Jim, when when you're uh, as a surviving spouse and family, meeting with the funeral director and preparing for burial, uh, that is an opportunity to go ahead and order uh, copies of death certificates. Ordinarily, they'll offer to order for you about six. We recommend getting 10 to 20. When you're filing claims for life insurance, pension benefits, 401ks, uh, change of ownership on, on benefits, excuse me, on uh, investments, they're going to require most of the time a certified death certificate. So go ahead and order plenty of those. Second, I think once you are close to retirement age or maybe you're already 60 plus, you need to immediately uh, notify Social Security Department. You need to gather birth certificates, your marriage license or marriage certificate. If your spouse is in the military, you need to get copies of uh, discharge papers, company benefits booklets. So your, your spouse or maybe even yourself, you need to have a copy of that company's benefit booklets because you may be entitled to Benefits, 401k, survivor benefits, things like that. Uh, car titles, people overlook that a lot of times, but you need to go ahead and get your hands on uh, car titles, put that in your filing system. You need to know who your spouse's executor was or is, so that's uh, important to know that. Have copies of the wills, recent bank statements, you need to have that, investment statements, 401ks, all of that needs to be gathered relatively soon after a funeral. And you can, if you can get that before the funeral, that's the best. That's Absolutely. the pre-planning process. Sure, and that goes back to the kind of the book or the filing system we were talking about before. Gotcha. Having that prepared ahead of time. 
um, and, and just getting all lined up in order. One thing to keep in mind also is, is don't delay paying bills. Um, the, your mortgage company, your electric company, utility, they're not going to delay billing you. They're not going to, you know, give you a waiting period. Keep, make sure you're paying those bills and, and keep that going uh, on time. So you don't incur late charges. One other point here, a little differently than what you gather, um, but is to make sure you, if you had a joint checking account, you keep a joint checking account. Sometimes there'll be odd checks that may be paid to, um, to a husband, spouse jointly or to the deceased. You need to have a place to put that. And so you can't just automatically go and reopen an account or open an account in deceased name now. So keep that joint checking account. So those odd checks have a place to be deposited. So I think that's really important to keep in mind there. One thing I, I kind of skipped over, but it's really important to know as well is know what your income and your expenses are. So take some time. If you haven't pre-planned it, go back through your banking records, go through your credit card records and take account of when your expenses are, when they fall, the amounts that are due each time and start planning for that. And then take into account your income from pensions, social security, work, uh, income, et cetera. So really one of the biggest things you do, don't hesitate to pick up the phone and call the employer. They're obviously going through all that and find out all about the employer. That's they, correct. Yeah, and, that's, and you know, you know, if they're most of the time you would anticipate they would know early on, right? but you want to go ahead and reach out to them as the surviving spouse or as the representative of the family and just let them know, we're going to be contacting you soon. You know, this, this employee of yours has passed away and who they'll be in touch with. You mentioned earlier about a booklet that would help person put all this together. What is that? Booklet? Right. We call that the guide to important financial documents. It is available. If you'll just contact our office and contact uh, anyone or, or specifically Ted or myself, ask for a copy of that. It's a great little guideline to get you thinking along the lines of organization. Summarize, David. What would you say is the most important thing? You know, I'd say, first of all, understand this is going to be a very emotional time. Something that it's, it's no matter how prepared you are, you're not going to be completely prepared. So have in mind who's going to be part of your support team. Seek out help. In advance is important. That's where, you know, your financial advisor comes into play, your accountant, perhaps a lawyer, but I would say even a trusted family member or a, uh, excuse me, trusted friend or family member who's good with finances. Ted, summarize. Well, I mentioned the fact that I think the first thing that people should do is go to the website and be able to look and see. They need to be familiar with what their benefits are. They need to look at their – they also need to look at their work history. I've, I've had a number of times where the, that work history has been wrong, and they there takes some time to work through that with the, uh, with the uh, Social Security Administration in case that, that's wrong. But, you know, David mentioned something that's important. You know, anytime we're talking about finances – most people, when they get this stage of life, do not know what their expenses really are. Knowing what your expenses are is really important. You know, that's so critical, and I appreciate what you guys have done. Thanks so much. You've been listening to David Rochester and Ted Miner. If you would like to personally give them a call, talk to them, 757-5757. If you'd like a copy of the guide that David mentioned, no obligation on your part. Just simply call, and we'll be glad to get that to you. We hope you've enjoyed today's program. As always, thanks for listening. If you have questions for Talk Money, send them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. And to find today's program on podcast or past programs, go to iTunes and search for Shoemaker Financial. Always, we appreciate if you like us on Facebook. I'm Jim Shoemaker. Thanks so much for listening. This is Talk Money. Talk Money is produced by Greg Ratliff. Guest and content coordination, Francis Fortner. Production assistant, Eleanor Moskovitz. Compliance officer, Tommy Armstrong. 
Mid-South History Moment, Rebecca Brazier and Drew Johnson. We'll see you next week on Talk Money. Jim Shoemaker, David Rochester, and Ted Miner are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securian Financial Services, Inc. Securities dealer, member FNIRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. Thank you.